Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. We have the online BPS course this Saturday, so check it out at tkex.org. I'm back once again with Leonard Van Gelder. We had an amazing chat on ACT and its relevance in clinical practice, and it was so amazing that I've asked him to come back and It'd be really cool to hear his, his take. He, he's also written a few blogs recently on his website, which have been really useful and, and fascinating. So we're going to dive into a few of the applications of, of ACT and related concepts. And let's get straight into it, Leonard. Thank you again for, for, ha- for having us and making the time. Thanks for having me on again. I really enjoyed the first time. So glad to be here. Awesome. So... Well, the, the first question, it was in relation to, to function. So we, we encounter a lot of perhaps pain-focused um, people coming into our clinic, it's, and it's not, not of their fault. They've been led down a path to be symptomatically focused and, and look at reducing symptoms. So based on, on ACT principles, if, if someone has um, no real functional goal they just want their pain to be gone what would be your initial approach to that limit that's a really good question and and it's and it's difficult uh, especially for those of us in kind of the physical rehabilitation world to address this because we were sort of prepped to take away people's pain and 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 to fix their problems and things like that so we, we have a difficult time addressing this question uh, because this is a question that a lot of times has to do a bit with, you know, what uh, in ACT is considered essentially some uh, difficulty or struggling with values and, and understanding what's meaningful to them. Um, the simplest way I think that I've, I've, I've heard um, defined is that, you know, living, um, living life in sort of the service of pain reduction is not a, is not a great life. And, and part of what we want to do with these individuals who come to us and say, you know what, um, I'm, I can do all the things that I want to do. I'm just hurting. I want to get rid of my pain, uh, is that we want to spend a little bit of time getting to know what they mean by that, because there, there, there are a lot of times is a lot more buried in there. Um, there are easier ways, um, to kind of, um, some of the act pain coursework would talk a lot about like, you know, um, they wouldn't show up on your doorstep if it was just about reducing their symptoms. I mean, they could do any number of things from, you know, drugs or alcohol to, you know, far worse, you know, suicide. Um, and, and essentially there, there are far other, more um, predictable ways to reduce symptoms that have obviously significant harm involved in them. And so if they're coming to, to you, there, there's something there. And, and so the difficulty for us is, is trying to figure out what it is. And, and so kind of going back to some of the things we, we talked about last time, again, sort of being able to create a little bit of this creative hopelessness uh, is, is one sort of way to open up and, and, and talk about, you know, all the things that they've tried, all the things that they've done up to this point, um, all the things that they're currently doing. And, and to think of like, how, ask them, how much, how much time are you spending during the day uh, thinking about your pain and thinking about how to reduce it or how to get rid of it? And, and just get an inventory of that. And realize perhaps, you know, even in the vein of, you know, symptom reduction, how much is that struggle that they're having with pain 
actually worsening their pain. And so those are cases where, you know, it's, 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 you have to be careful that you never plant this, uh, this, this sense of artificial hope that will lead them towards this miracle cure, but to realize or to instill the sense of hope that perhaps that there's an aspect to what they're saying is this pain. That's actually the struggle. It's actually this, 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 this kind of, um, avoidance of pain they're 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 already avoiding they're already trying to get rid of it that is in fact making their pain worse and to try and find a way to bring them towards uh, realizing that there's these these layers on top of this sensation of pain that's that's actually that's actually driving a lot of their struggles and if we work through those life gets better it gets easier we can't guarantee the pain's going to be gone i do think that there's some potential that um, as we look at some of the literature that maybe these struggling components are truly adding to nociceptive factors potentially. So we may potentially influence their pain in the long run, but we can't put that towards the kind of our end goal, but rather how do we, how do we um, have them work into life uh, and, and look at the things that they're already doing and do also identify that, you know, maybe it, they, they, they're doing things just fine, but maybe there's an easier way for them to do it. Maybe there's a way to be more efficient. Maybe there's a way for them to enjoy the things that they're, they're doing more, even with some pain. And by actually spending time with the pain is where a lot of the magic happens. Uh, because a lot of what they're trying to do is avoid it, neglect it, um, and actually getting to know the pain. So we're not trying to say, hey, put up with your pain and keep going, because that's the exact opposite of where we're trying to go. It's rather, how do we take the pain, bring it into what they're doing, and find out how do we become a little bit more um, functional and meaningful uh, on going forward. Awesome. And in that process, things can happen and things can emerge where their experiences changed for the long term and they've got some strategies that they can use themselves and also just a more helpful mindset and a shift from just purely that symptomatic focus. And I can imagine it's a huge paradigm shift for for many people, so the, the lay person, in, in terms of um, navigating that area during the creative hopelessness, if like the, some of the nuances perhaps, if they don't see that they've been using up a lot of their time and resources and, and they've been just very much fused with the idea of, of needing um, symptom relief, What's your kind of approach there? Because looking at the change has to come from within, looking at it's not our responsibility, uh, looking at we have to meet them sometimes where they are at. Perhaps, yeah, how would you approach in, in that scenario? Uh, so I think uh, it's also a good, really good follow-up. I think one of the first things is, is if we can create it in the clinic or now, um, obviously as we're using telehealth more, we can, we can observe them at home. Uh, if we can see uh, what they're doing, uh, because more often than not, they'll, some people will say, well, the pain's there all the time. But with a little bit of, uh, you know, observation skills that you teach them, they start to realize, no, it's more prevalent with XYZ activity. And if we can start to bring them into the activity and start to kind of analyze, you know, what's going on, you know, first from our bread and butter that we might understand, just kind of looking at their movement introduce or identifying maybe there's some guarded behaviors and some ways that they could be doing things uh, a little bit more efficiently, a little bit easier for them as a whole. 
um, may have some impact and also have them realize, oh, you know, I've been doing this harder than, than, than I needed to. Now, that doesn't always come up right away. And sometimes, again, we have to, it's, to use the second best, I think, sometimes. And some, for some individuals, maybe it's the first best. Um, but, but I think um, logs are important. Having people sort of journal and talk about their day and, and their experience uh, with pain. Um, you know, I'm cautious about kind of pain levels and pain scales, but, um, sometimes with this kind of, kind of case, we do want to have them start to identify, no, there are circumstances in their life where the pain is experienced as worse. They struggle worse with the pain. And, and the interesting thing is, is, is just how, um, how often people are completely blind that no, it's not always the same. It, it really does change based on what I'm doing and who I'm with and where I'm at and, and all these different things. And if we can even start to kind of narrow their pain experience where it might be exactly the same amount of pain, but now we sort of are, aha, it's driving, it's working, it's whatever, changing the kitty litter. <clears throat> you know, there's, there's so many things that, um, that start to draw out um, if we actually put that lens on it. And, and that's what we want to try and do is can we put it right in the movement and the activity at first, but if we can't, then we got to kind of figure out how do we start to capture this so with, with some sort of journal or log or something. Awesome. It's, and then they, they get that, number one, they're actively involved in, in being curious about when uh, their pain fluctuates. And there's perhaps in there likely some credible evidence that it's not related to damage or it's not related to um, any specific factors that they thought it was related to so normally stress related or or other outside factors so it can breed a little bit of that that intrigue and curiosity in the process and then they've learned from that experience and then you can reflect on it in person absolutely and and again with with individuals again we can't really i i can't say exactly what are the networks that this person has all the relationships they have in their mind in terms of their relationship to pain but, um, you know, oftentimes there is a sense of like, we, these are also a little bit more cautious in terms of addressing um, thought fusions, cognitive fusions and, and emotional avoidance and things like that. And so by going through this process where we, we go in exactly where they came for, which is pain, but we want to be more curious about their pain. Now we start to open up, oh, we have these other pieces that we can also see that is paired with these uh, movements in these circumstances and situations as well. So it opens up even another avenue for us to explore as we go forward. Awesome. And just hearing this as well, the other side of the equation is the clinicians. It's a huge paradigm shift for them. So I think uh, if we were to clear up a few perhaps misconceptions or misinterpretations, as you already mentioned, just to emphasize that we still emphasize with we still um, are empathetic rather towards our patients. We still validate their experience and we still show, show our utmost care. We show so much care that we want the best for this person. And this is now our approach to give them the, the solution as opposed to some people might from the outside see that approach as, you know, we're not caring about their pain. What, what do you say to, to counter that? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a good question. You know, it's, um, um, I, you know, I guess it's just, um, there's, there's two, my, my brain wants to go two different directions here. One is, is the importance for 
myself as someone who's struggled with, with uh, a lot of different pain experiences and, and realizing how important it was for me to um, kind of almost think about the things that I'm saying for my clients uh, because I've been on the receiving end of that. Uh, and so I can, I can say that, um, you know, this for me resonates well, but also that um, for our clients and for us as we're working with them, we are truly trying to take this to, to, to a level of where, you know, it's, it's no longer just where we're this mechanic shop where you came in here and this is a transaction and you came in here, we would, you know, your radiator's broken. We're going to take it out and we're going to replace it kind of thing. Very transactional kind of relationship and caring. They came in with a problem, you fixed it kind of thing. And, and that's a pretty superficial relationship here. Here we're coming in that with this problem, and 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 we're 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 really appreciating because again, many of us have struggled with pain, and and therefore it's not like we can say this say to this person like, oh, you know, I'll just suck it up and go on. No, that's we know that doesn't work. Um, we're looking at this in in the sense that okay, this person is really suffering. This person is struggling, and and it's really a level deeper than what I think we we might have gotten into this profession. Uh, but I think that all of us are capable of it if we just see this this sense of like uh, we are trying to understand their pain in a bigger scope. It's not this little isolated thing. It's there's so much going on in this person's life that we wouldn't even have known. They wouldn't have even acknowledged that we couldn't go into these spaces. This you know what might be considered again this third space uh, with our clients where we have this you know, relationship, this working therapeutic relationship that allows us to be able to open up both ends. Because, you know, the, the thing is also classically as a clinician, we come in very kind of like, I have seen XYZ pain problems or XYZ problems. And so many times I think that as this person's coming in, it's going to be one of these things we're already trying to think ahead of it. And the problem is if you come into these kind of interactions where you have someone who's coming in just for pain and nothing else is, well, at least they don't recognize nothing else, you're going to essentially hit a wall and you're going to keep getting stuck because you have to open up and recognize your own sort of inflexibility, psychological inflexibility that's present to be able to find out how to help this person to go through some processes to kind of increase their flexibility and and reveal more about themselves and be able to, to make um, long-standing change uh, that, uh, that is perhaps more to the core of what they came in for. They just didn't realize it <laughs> at, the, at the time. So Awesome. And that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And we can, it just makes our jobs so much easier in that case where we keep, we, they, they keep the responsibility. It's not our responsibility for them to have a change in sensation, perception, experience. We don't, we're down that sensation, perception rabbit hole, but it's, it's yeah. not up to us for, for them. It's, it's up to them. And it's, it's so much more freeing for us. We've got so much more flexibility in our approach as well. And there's less pressure on us to reduce that arbitrary score each session or, or in the future. Absolutely. Awesome. We've, uh, so hopefully that covered that, that point for, for the people that might think that, you know, we don't give a shit about pain. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. Quite the opposite. We're, 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 we're uh, 
truly trying to embrace their pain and, uh, and go on that journey with them. That's it. And when people um, are going through the, the movement, uh, movement experiments, we'll call them, where they are looking to see and we are looking to use our skills to see if that we can bring about some kind of change in experience of some sort um, and leading to um, perhaps some expectancy violation or, or just different approaches to their functional movement. There's, there can be, if we want to dichotomize for the purpose of this question, two routes the movement variability camp where we can just change that movement itself and the just building capacity, getting the, the person stronger in that particular movement and uh, building up their resilience for it without necessarily changing the, the movement um, from the outside at least. What's, what's your approach in, in when it comes to working with, with someone? Would you choose one over another approach in certain situations? How would you go about it? Um, I think that uh, I think that they always need to be. We always need to do both. At least my biases. I, I feel like um, I feel like to some degree there is um, a need for an individual to have some basic tools of understanding. We call it essentially just sort of these awareness processes, and um, we also think that that there's a need for these build processes and in in both cases these are are, are things that um, that essentially are, are natural um, allies that work together and I think that some of the probably some of the early mistakes with greater exposures and and sometimes unfortunately when I get um, referrals they've gone through a number of, of attempts at this before they've, they've had greater exposure from from psychologists, they've had great exposure from PTs, um, and um, and sometimes they're almost they are to to a certain degree traumatized, and and I think that that there is a a, a stepping back that needs to be done, and sometimes if we can identify these earlier, then maybe we'd we'd, we'd have that opportunity to to go both ways, but I think that there has to be a little bit of recognition and some of these basic requisite skills that an individual should, should be able to learn about their, their process of returning to their activity. And, and I think that in that journey, you're still going to hit physical, mental, and emotional uh, limits. And, and again, this is why we have to build that capacity, why uh, comprehensive capacity is all of those factors. And so I, I really don't think anymore in my kind of way of looking at things and the way that we built the, the movement of pain framework that you can really separate out um, one from the other. You have to um, you have to have a little bit of both. Now you could have a little bit of like classic curated exposure that occurs very early on, especially when it comes to introducing some aerobic activity. If we just want to get this individual moving, we absolutely want to kind of um, again, set up your stage, your, your, your experiment, identify fears and beliefs about that aerobic activity, but, but, uh, but sort of just kind of make room for those and just kind of get at it. But at the same time, you can start concurrently building um, these kind of awareness skills, these movement uh, variations and exploring uh, ways of, of, of uh, movement variability through context. All these different things um, can occur concurrently. Uh, and in some cases, I think it has to be somewhat one before the other, just because um, either the person 
it, you could sort of see that they're going to hit a wall pretty quick. Um, and I don't have a good gauge for, for how I measure that, but you can kind of see that you'd probably want to start here a little bit and then to kind of start to introduce the graded exposure over, over the courses, uh, course of sessions as you go along as they build uh, trust. And so I think that it's always both. Uh, I don't think that there's any way to, to separate them out. And uh, that's kind of where, where, where my thinking is at at this time. Definitely. I tried hard to make it a black or white kind of <laughs> question, but you're, you're right. And one brings along some of the other too. So when we're going through uh, you know, traditional strength and conditioning, yes, we have some arbitrary measures and what looks to be similar technique, but every movement is slightly different from the rep before and fatigue plays a factor. And there's so many other factors involved that we are improving their capacity through certain movement variabilities within that sphere. So, and I like the, the way that you approach it where it's, we can do both. It's just like if someone's rehabbing a um, sports or acute injury, we look at building up their aerobic capacity at the same time as building up their strength. So it's a bit of both in there. Yep. We, we chatted about and um, we touched on Feldenkrais in the previous podcast. And I'm not too sure about how prevalent it is, at least from what I've seen locally. It's not too prevalent, especially amongst the, the physical rehab world and definitely amongst the exercise and strength and conditioning world. So could you explain a little bit more about your understanding of it and how it can uh, relate to these concepts that we've been talking about with mindfulness and, and awareness building? Certainly. Um, the first thing is that I am not, I did not go through um, guild accreditation for Feldenkrais. Um, it, it's, it's the most important thing uh, to kind of acknowledge at the forefront. The, so I am purely gathering from my observations, uh, taking part in these movement courses and, and, um, a local uh, uh, physio, his name is Joe Woody. He was kind enough to uh, spend some time kind of uh, expanding his, his experience going uh, through um, Feldenkrais training. So I spent a lot of time kind of digging into um, his work, though, because I, I felt like from my exposures to it that it was extremely helpful for what we were all doing. Uh, because he was, um, so Moshe Feldenkrais was a engineer and a um, physicist, and he um, uh, also had a strong background in martial arts and other sports, in particular uh, judo. And um, so he had, uh, you know, essentially been exposed to this idea, like judo is uh, the the gentle way. Uh, and and so some of that combined with his kind of uh, scientific background he way, way ahead of his time started to appreciate some of these concepts with movement variability, uh, attention to movement, movement with attention, as they would call it. Um, and he spent a lot of time talking about uh, essentially like laterality concepts and uh, reciprocal crossover. Uh, he had a good understanding of neurodynamics way before neurodynamics was a thing. Uh, there was a lot of things that I think that was, that was quite quite ahead of his time in terms of motor behavior, motor learning. Uh, he only taught three times. And so he had 300 people he taught. Um, and um, so there's, there's a lot of what exists is based on these three courses <laughs> that essentially that existed. And so there's some <laughs> variability in, in instructors and, and, and uh, philosophies as, as people have learned it. And, and it's an extensive process, two to four years 
uh, depending on who you go through that uh, the the training. Uh, but um, they spend a lot of time, um, essentially, uh, like the videos that you posted that I gave examples of. And, and mine aren't true Feldenkrais. I just kind of butchered it, to be honest. There's a lot of things that I butchered that uh, that are inspired uh, with a flavor of Feldenkrais, but it is not Feldenkrais. Um, and um, but a lot of time is spent on essentially both the individual as well as these guided sensory motor kind of contact uh, to, to help individuals to learn their bodies better. A lot of things are done in, in supine and laying. A lot of things are done in sitting. Uh, and, um, and he had, I, I think if I remember right, and this, this maybe someone can easily correct this, but he has over 4,000 different kind of movement experiments that he kind of taught. And um, so I thought it was really interesting because it also overlaps with their understanding of, again, the role of nociception and stretch tolerance with range of motion and mobility. So a lot of his experiments showed this, this beautiful change in the quality of movement, the range of motion uh, with effortless um, little movement activities and curiosity and experimentation. These are, again, things we understand from mindfulness or we understand from ACT. So I think there, there was such a huge um, understanding of the human mind and emotions and the human body all being one that I, I, I drew a lot of insight from him. Uh, Annette Benyel was uh, also uh, was one of his, his students who, who who's kind of really um, pushed some of the boundaries of this, and she has a great book called uh, Move Into Life, um, and that's also a really good book. I recommend people if they want to kind of get exposure. Now, it is her work really that expanded on his uh, work, and, and some of the things are not probably uh, original to, to his work, but uh, it still overlaps with some of these concepts. There are a number of obviously kind of like somatic educational type things that are considered alternative that really have probably some foresight into what we're had some foresight into what we're seeing now as we're we're looking at the self um, from a RFT perspective as well as from uh, sensory motor uh, integration. And another one I think that's interesting, I would say it kind of inspires the way that we do some of our our manual education is also the Alexander Technique. Um, Alexander Technique also has a little bit of um, similar concepts related to um, motor learning and motor behavior uh, that were ahead of the time. Both of these, again, not a lot of research, a lot of things in there, but all you need to do is, is take some of the ideas and, and dabble a little bit with what you already know, and um, you, can, you can do some, some fun things that allow people to be very actively engaged and develop these attentional processes, which uh, I really find is so uh, important in the overall awareness process of being able to be skilled at attention and to see how behavior changes just with a little bit of attention. So um, I really encourage people to investigate it. Uh, we have kind of cobbled together our own kind of butchered system of it based on what we feel like the evidence is now and some of the inspired uh, work of, of, of years gone by. So. <laughs> awesome. And it's great that you um, are not saying that it's a specific method or system and you're using what is helpful. So you're taking, stealing some concepts and principles versus specific movements. And it goes to show the value of, of immersing yourself in it yourself during that process of, of learning. Um, so having a trusted colleague where you can actually experience it 
and go through the motions uh, can help us understand it in a much deeper way. Absolutely. No, the, the, the firsthand experience is one thing to read about it, uh, but you have, to, you have to have that actual experience of, of kind of going through some of the, the, some of the concepts they had and whether the order and the operations, whether any of that matters, <clears throat> it likely doesn't, but just the experience of that as well as any of the hands-on kind of guided, uh, a wonderful, simple contact, interactive, um, you know, uh, psychomotor skills is it's just it's a very helpful and liberating experience because you're 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 starting to realize you look at your manual therapy different you look at your teaching different you look at your coaching your cueing it's uh, everything is a little different when um, once you've had experience through sort of these uh, kind of general concepts that a lot of these previous thinkers had uh, but again it's it's uh, None of it is, is solid. None of it is, um, uh, you know, um, uh, a structure you can depend on, but it's, it's still very, very valuable, I think, for us to kind of gain insight, just like there is mindfulness from a lot of the spiritual practices and, and act for mindfulness and, and spiritual practices. We can always draw from sort of history. Definitely. There's always uh, resources available for us out there, and we can always reach out to to see some of these things in practice and get that experience. So then we can take it into the clinic. And I, I wanted to, to encapsulate some of what we've been talking about um, over this podcast and the previous one. So listeners do check out part one. We go through some really juicy, valuable topics there. And I wanted to encapsulate putting the science, the pain science into, into practice. So using relational frame theory, and functional contextualism concepts. How, what are some practical tips you would have for helping a few clinicians translate the, the research, the pain research into action? And it can be as general as you'd like. I think the, the biggest thing is, is put it into action, is to look at a, um, at a common, um, a common presentation. Uh, I used the example. I updated the, the blog with a graphic of of, of an ankle sprain, uh, and I think it's a it's a great analogy. But to to or a great great kind of a, a simple example because we've all worked with an ankle sprain in the in the past, and to sort of look at it um, as a moment in time, and then to you know take your client, take your own experience. Preferably, hopefully, most of us. I, well, I hope, but I think most of us have had an ankle sprain at some point in time, or some sort of acute injury, and for a moment, almost like freeze that 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 acute injury in time, and and think of it in in layers. You know, for a moment, again, looking at all these sort of metaphors of of worldviews, mechanism, organicism, uh, contextualism. For a moment, look at it from a mechanistic perspective and think about some of the biomechanics that may be present, some of the tr tissues that may be um, potentially injured or, or involved in the process. Think about um, the peripheral nerve uh, that's innervating the tissues. Think about the musculature that's involved in that region and think about how all those pieces are actively going on. Think about how that's processed perhaps at the spinal cord. Think about how that's uh, at the lower brain. L look at what it's looking at the higher brain with the cortical uh, 
uh, processing and think through what are all the possible things that may arise if you're looking from a mechanistic perspective. Start to realize sometimes some of the limitations and, and start to, to, to think about again, well, what was your history with that ankle? What was the context of the situation you're in? Uh, what were all the other, uh, what are the people that are present? How do all these things factor in? And you start to realize that you are going to overload this mechanistic view pretty quickly if you stay inside of that. Your, your boundaries have just been exceeded. And so I think that, you know, taking simple things, whether it's a simple injury or um, uh, even a simple sensation and, and, and following it both, you know, uh, through the basic sciences of um, uh, basic mechanistic sciences, uh, peripheral nerve to central nervous system, to immune to endocrine, to all the different things that you have learned with your understanding of pain science, and 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 think about that joint by joint, think about that sensory experience by sensory experience, and just start to get comfortable with it, just to to practice with it, uh, what that feels like to you, what that seems like to you. And then looking at another person, looking from the outside. So um, RFT kind of talks about I versus you, here versus there, um, or here versus there, um, and now versus then. And sometimes even being able to get this deep learning, and, and, and a lot of times this is used more for behavioral uh, skills and things like that. But to even learn these concepts, internalize these concepts, start to think about you looking at that person getting injured and then thinking uh, the same kind of processes through, um, thinking about what it would look like five minutes from now, five minutes from now, if, if you were them or it was you. Um, and thinking about, you know, essentially even, uh, again, those spatial dimensions that are, that are present there. So, so I think that um, just taking real life and and um, blowing it up like a video that you can play with in three dimensions, I think is probably the most valuable thing that you could do to really internalize and, and get good at this. And I think uh, at least that's that's my first answer. <laughs> Definitely, and and shout out to your blog as well for showing an illustration of that. It's so good to have a, a set example, a real life scenario that we can we can go through we can relate to and then looking at it from i love the the i versus you so looking at it from some some thought experiments what would this look like in five minutes time what did it look like at the onset what would it look like if someone else was in the the picture so it's like looking at all the different dimensions it's it's quite um quite interesting to see and take a step back and look at all the connections and how all the factors can interplay, interweave within each other and affect the whole. I think that's the, the, the main takeaway I had from, from that one. I have to say that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> and hopefully, it's a, uh, hopefully the summary is good, though. That's <laughs> or the, what I gave was good. The con hopefully the content was good. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that just, again, back into the, the, the actual experience, going through that um, yourself would be a lot easier than, than us trying to kind of verbalize the, the process. I feel like there's a certain amount of kind of relatedness that people would need um, in order to see the entire picture. And it's a huge transition from going from that mechanistic worldview over to the, the functional contextual looking at the whole. It's like, a, yeah, like I say, crossing the chasm. When, when it comes to, <laughs> and when it comes to, um, we can't, we can only control, what we 
how we approach um, certain concepts. We can only control how we practice. We can't impose our way of practice towards other clinicians. Knowing that we might come across um, whether they'd be uh, colleagues or referees, so people referring people onto our services, where they've been practicing this in this certain mechanistic way for, for a long time. So how would you approach navigating the um, working with others? They can also be patients who have certain, um, certain paradigms, certain perspectives, and practice more of that mechanistic philosophy. Or we're in, a, in an environment, a clinic environment, where that is dominant. What would you kind of do in those situations to, to marry the, the two in a way? That is a good realistic situation because that's going to be the vast majority of, of uh, I think anyone who's kind of probably listening to this podcast and, and uh, um, uh, situations that they're in. Um, and, you know, the, the first thing is, which I, I, I did a terrible job um, to, I think uh, a lot of my classmates, my colleagues, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a shout out and apology, apology for not, uh, you know, working on my own inflexibility. And, and part of it, I think I was still trying to figure out how to improve my own flexibility uh, so that I can help and you can help with another person to process, to essentially improve their flexibility process as a whole. And so, you know, I think probably the, the, the best I can suggest at this point in my career is again recognize first what you're seeing in them you you should see in yourself uh because you've got new knowledge and now you're starting to uh you know perhaps be shifting this contextualistic uh kind of viewpoint and uh in that process again you've made a shift and you still have to realize that as a viewpoint and it their viewpoint is still valid you know in in that construct and so Shifting with them to that viewpoint, but setting those kind of boundaries sometimes where essentially you you work with them looking at things from a mechanistic viewpoint, and then you start to hit and you point out some limitations of where we can go here. We start to now create creative hopelessness in the sense of like, so why, okay, why did that happen? Or, you know, what next? And if that, then that, what would happen? What would you do if that happened? What would you happen if this happened? And so you sort of start to use some motivational interviewing skills, perhaps to start to open up a bit of a, um, a bit of doubt <laughs> to some degree, or a little bit of, uh, again, this creative hopelessness to open them up to a little bit of like, maybe there's something more here. And, and so I think that, we have to kind of probably start by slowing down, pausing, going inward, kind of realizing our cognitive, our emotional kind of responses to the things they're saying or that they're doing, and then start to sort of like observe in what they're doing and then meet them where they're at with that viewpoint and, and see if you can have a good conversation so that they know that you're still able to talk the way that they, that they know and in their 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 kind of viewpoint or in their their kind of way of looking at things and 
I, I hope that in that space where you guys are together, even if you're sort of mechanistically looking at this from a contextualistic perspective, um, that you can create that little space that might create a little bit of option for change. And, and I think despite my worst um, mistakes, I've seen previous classmates, colleagues, different individuals um, that I've encountered over a lifetime, including patients who I think that I accidentally instilled some of these processes or I didn't, but we together engaged in some of these processes that open up for some increased psychological flexibility that I think opened them to start to be curious a little bit more. And ultimately they found their own way um, despite my kind of screwing things up at the start. And, and, and my hope is that's the same for, for everyone else. And, um, and also that maybe we can get a little bit better at that so that we don't, we don't make them more inflexible. We don't reinforce their existing processes by, by hitting that brick wall because um, you know, that, that whole sense of coherency, if they don't have, if we're breaking their coherency too strongly without opening up a little bit of space for them to be able to shift to something else. They're just going to fuse in their thoughts more. They're going to fuse in their ways so much more. And, uh, and I don't think that's going to help anyone. So I'm pretty sure it won't. What a beautiful example as well for the world of social media, where it can be very easy to, to experience the backfire effect. And yeah, it's really difficult to, to take a look in and look at how we are responding as individuals to a stimulus in front of us on a, on a screen of an opinion from someone on another, on the other side of the world, looking through a screen as well. So having that um, perspective and practicing the act concepts of working with someone's narrative versus trying to just kind of knock it down or, or break their entire worldview apart over a, a Facebook comment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, that is, uh, it's, uh, as it it is very challenging. And I I would say that our current environment makes us much more susceptible. Now that we have this worldwide social trauma that we're all going through, I think that uh, our, our tendency to be crave coherency is so much higher and the survival, you know, demands are so much higher that the walls are going to be so much more rigid and, and, and there is no greater time for us to develop better skills than this. And I, I, I have to tell that to myself every day that that's, this is, this is something I have to get better at um, because uh, it's, it's going to be only more important that we're better at these skills to be able to help others, to be able to transition. Exactly. And our colleagues are human too. I think we kind of forget that and make certain assumptions that they should be following a certain, you know, um, arbitrary guideline of some sort as, you know, as long as they're not killing anyone, I think there's plenty of flexibility within that that we need to respect, right? Absolutely. That's a great one. I, that's the one always have to remind ourselves like, you know, could be far worse. <laughs> so. yeah. Then I wanted to quickly rehash on the uh, resources that you've, you've had for ACT and all these different kind of concepts. So um, how did you, you get stuck into it? How did you go down this, um, this paradigm way of thinking? Uh, so again, uh, it was just uh, um, 
personal and professional struggle, uh, and then uh, starting to uh, use the wonders of social media combined with uh, other kind of literature references that uh, was introduced to to ACT. And um, uh, the, probably I, I started to, I started first with a lot of the literature on it, and then um, some of Hay's work, but then I found my, my first real good entry point was with Russ Harris's, um, act made simple. Um, and, um, and that process led me to other authors. Um, and, uh, Stephen Hayes had updated, uh, or he had written a book, a liberator mind that, uh, I believe was helpful for me as well. And also the act immersion courses, which by the way, I think they're open now. So the third cohort just opened uh, and they fill pretty quickly. I remember my, I was lucky to get in a second. It, it fills fairly, fairly quickly. Um, I found that one immensely helpful. Uh, it is an uncomfortable place coming into it from uh, as a physical therapist, unless you have a background in acts like Act Made Simple or some other exposure. So I, I don't recommend people jumping into that until they have a good probably year underneath their belt, just kind of dabbling into it and, and working with uh, preferably some local uh, psychologists if they could they can connect with them, and if not, uh, remotely with uh, some psychologists who use ACT as a, as an approach. So that was kind of that piece. Um, as I um, read, I, I kept hearing about relational frame theory, uh, but it wasn't until probably a year ago that I started to realize I need to learn more about it. I, again, I started with Hayes' work, was a little overwhelming again. Uh, so I backtracked, I found, um, I found uh, the um, Learning RFT book, and um, essentially that um, really was a game changer for me, and it made me realize this was, you know, the book is written about um, uh, verbal behavior, which is uh, B.F. Skinner's verbal behavior, but also uh, that means language and cognition. But it really is, uh, in a framework which which we hope to um, validate at some point in time and, and and some examples that they give already and they already kind of supports what we're already doing in terms of sensory stimulus motor behavior uh, all these different things that we already know that are there uh, are tied into relational frame theory and I just think that it's important that we probably blow that up a little bit bigger because uh, it really makes very it's pretty it makes a lot of sense when you when you look at it once you understand it from a uh, language and cognitions behavior. This is also, this is how motor behavior works. And and when you can appreciate it through that lens, uh, it connects a lot of like uncertainties and and um, frustrations that I felt that I had with movement and trying to portray what I see behaviorally, what I see about qualities uh, and the relationships that we see between, again, cognitions and emotions as well as the the movement. So uh, I think it's a really valuable piece as well. So awesome. Great to, to hear about the resources for the listeners out there. that want to dive deeper into this new rabbit hole for them. So Leonard, Absolutely. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure over these past two podcasts. What, what kind of, for people that want to reach out to you and, and learn more about your work and coursework, where can we find you? Thanks again for having me. Um, I would say dynamicprinciples.com, D-Y-N-A-M-I-C-P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E-S.com is probably going to be the, the uh, kind of main go-to. Uh, shows our courses, um, some of our certification that's uh, in development. And um, other than that, uh, uh, follow the blog on there uh, as we make updates. We'll be 
uh, in this next few months, we'll be releasing sort of our open source uh, movement with pain framework and uh, we're looking forward to have discussions about that. Um, other than that, they can email me Leonard at dynamic principles.com or find me on uh, Twitter or uh, I'd say just the dynamic principles, Facebook page or uh, would be, would be good. So. Awesome. Leonard. Thank you once again for, for your time. Some really cool topics that we don't often talk about and hopefully we'll be talking much more about these topics. It'll be a bit more um, prevalent, I'd say, in the world of physical rehab and, and movement specialty. Thank you once again, Leonard, and until next time. Thanks so much for having me. Take care.